Welcome to Morning Synth on FM 97.7, 6,100, 512, 2020. SGM Today we've got some fun topics We'll be making a couple of phone calls And having some cool conversations with some really rad folks And to start us off Here's a poem. Eurocladon by Henry Kendall. On the storm cloven cape, the bitter waves roll. With the bergs of the pole And the darks and the damps of the northern sea For the storm-cloven cape Is an alien shape With a fearful face And it moans And it stands Outside all lands Everlastingly When the fruits of the year Have been gathered in Spain and the Indian rain is rich on the evergreen lands of the sun. There comes to this cape, to this alien shape, as the waters beat in and the echoes troop forth, the wind of the north, Eurocladon. And the wilted time and the patches past of the nettles cast in the drift of the rift and the broken rhyme are tumbled and blown to every zone with the famished gleed and the plovers thinned by this fourfold wind this wind sublime 
on the wrinkled hills by starts and fits the wild moon sits and the rindles fill and flash and fall in the way of her light through the straightened night when the sea heralds clamor and elves of the war in the torrents afar hold festival from ridge to ridge the polar fires on the naked spires with a foreign splendor flit and flow and clone cave and architrave have a blood-colored glamour on roof and on wall like a nether hall in the hells below the dead dry lips of the ledges split by the thunder fit and the stress of the sprites of the forked flame anon break out with a shriek and a shout like a hard bitter laughter cracked and thin from a ghost with a sin too dark for a name and all through the year the fierce seas run from sun to sun across the face of a vacant world the wind flies forth from the wild white north that shivers and harries the heart of things and shapes with its wings a chaos of hurled like one who sees a rebel light in the thick of the night as he stumbles and staggers on summits afar who looks to it still up hill and hill with a steadfast hope though the ways be deep and rough and steep like a steadfast star so i that stand on the outermost peaks of peril with cheeks blue with the salts of a frosty sea have learnt to wait with an eye elate and a heart intent for the fuller blaze of the beauty that rays like a glimpse for me of the beauty that grows whenever I hear the winds of fear from the tops and the bases of barrenness call and the duplicate lore which I learn evermore is of harmony filling and rounding the storm and the marvelous form that governs all. My name is Julian Andrews, and with me is Eric Santos on The Synthesizer. Bringing us some tasty licks, as always.
this morning. We're drinking black coffee. And surprisingly enough, Winco has brought back the bulk section. So now, we get to determine how much coffee we stuff into each bag. Let's go ahead and make a phone call. Hello? Hello, Danny. This is Julian and Eric from Morning Synth. Good morning. How are y'all doing today? We're doing amazing. How about you? Not too bad. I just had breakfast and coffee, so... I am ready. <laughs> so before we start, can you tell us a little bit about what you ate and what type of coffee you're drinking? Yes, I made myself some scrambled eggs with spinach, topped that off with some shredded cheese, tomatoes, and avocado. And I also had a cinnamon raisin bagel with whipped cream cheese, along with a chameleon New Orleans-styled cold brew. So it was a splendid breakfast. <laughs> that sounds like those were all parts of a well-balanced breakfast. I, I try to keep it well-balanced. I, um, I am very, um, what's the word? I put that in the forefront of my mind. That everything needs to have its uh, balance. But yeah, it is. <laughs> well, I, I think that's going to be a great segue into some questions that we've got lined up for you. You ready for that? Totally, totally. Very cool. So from our understanding, you work in music education, and we'd like to know mm -hmm. what inspired you to become a music educator. Oh, yeah. Um, where do I begin? Um, well, I started taking, like, private piano lessons when I was five. So That's I've pretty young. Been yeah. <laughs> It is, and um, so it's going to give away my age, but I've been playing um, music for 22, 23 years now. So, um, and what inspired me to become a music educator was my piano teacher. She is just so inspiring and so passionate that she instilled that in me. And I think many know that music is very healing. And so for me, I want to be able to contribute to society through music education. That's amazing. So, oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, also, so 
de- definitely sounds like it's had a huge impact on your life. But um, how has music education or music in general kind of shaped you as a person? Oh, yeah. So for music education and just music in general, I believe that it's been able to help me express myself when I don't have the right words to say. And, you know, with some artists and some musicians, they've written some compelling music where maybe the words are a bit vague and um, they're the whole key of everything is just so, or yeah, when they're in a key and they're just using different chordal structures and you're just like, yeah. And so musicians, they make that sting face. They're just like, ooh, that that was really good. So um, for me, that was like the one thing that I was always able to return to, like at the end of a really long day, whether it was like going to class for like 12 hours straight or like working like a ridiculous shift for whatever odd job I was doing, I was able to come home and just like blast the tunes and like, I don't know, be transcended into another universe. Absolutely. And yeah. So um, when I heard about this uh, podcast, I was like, oh yeah, since in the morning, <laughs> it's like to wake up and like feel good. I'm about that. Very cool. So you you said that you started with piano um do you play other instruments besides the piano yeah i do actually so my first instrument was piano and then i started guitar lessons and then it it kind of like fell off but i started teaching myself okay um and yeah and then i also sing as well very cool and thank you (laughs) And as a music educator, you're supposed to be um, a jack of all trades. So, like, throughout the years, I've, like, picked up violin and cello and, like, flute. Um, I've tried trombone for a little bit, but that's hard. And um, it, apparently I'm, like, allergic to brass. So <laughs> I try to stay away from putting that stuff on my face. <laughs> um, but, yeah. And I... I try to dabble uh, playing bass because guitar and bass are very similar. Mm-hmm. It's just the technique is different. So, yeah, I, I, I like to consider myself a multi-instrumentalist. But very cool. Definitely. But thank you. Thank you. It's really hard, but I try. <laughs> so um, the top three definitely are piano, guitar, and um, vocals. Oh, I also play ukulele too. All right, <laughs> very well rounded. I I kind of feel that being a musician for long enough, unless you're really enraptured by a single instrument, you just kind of start picking up different instruments along the way. Um, I know for me, I play quite a few instruments as well. I've always had issues trying to learn how to play woodwinds or brass i just i can't wrap my head around it yeah one of my um another friend she is actually um multi-instrumentalist going into um another field of um music therapy and she plays like violin and bass okay so and, and is that yeah, bass like, guitar or like upright bass? Uh, bass guitar. Okay. 
but there was like one thing she said about like it's like you're like pressing buttons and trying to produce a sound and it's just it's so odd <laughs> yeah absolutely so have you had any hard experiences working with music students oh definitely um so as a music teacher, um, there's different realms you can t- uh, go into. So there's like private teaching and then there's like the classroom um, teaching. And I have more experience with the private because um, I'm currently um, taking uh, classes to earn my credential. Very cool. So thank you. And it's, it's really, really tough to go from one-on-one lessons to a group setting where there's close to 50 kids in one mm-hmm. classroom. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and there's all sorts of things that come up, like um, there's behavioral stuff or like just like neurological um, development within the children and are, it's just missing communication. And there's also like English learners who, um, you know, they're they're not native English speakers. So being able to communicate um, a task or an activity is pretty difficult. So um, I'll, I'll just stick with like the private lessons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, for private lessons, it's, it's really important to be able to explain one thing at least 10 different ways. Okay. And it's, it's because when you're trying to give information, you have to meet a student in the middle. So you have to activate like background knowledge of, well, does this kid play video games? Well, how can I talk about video games that relates to music? Mm-hmm. Or um, I've had adult students where they grew up on like Stevie Wonder and Elton John. And I'm like, okay, well, what do I know about them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do I connect that? So there's those different aspects of um, that's been like the most difficult part. And the other thing too, is you want to develop a relationship with these individuals. Cause you know, at the end of the day, they're, we're all humans and we all desire connection. So I've always seen music lessons as being able to be like the starting point of developing um, a relationship with an individual and it's being able to maintain that. And, it's definitely really difficult because I'm one of those people where are people where I'm like, okay, like I need to do like 110% like all the time, make sure like I don't miss anything, skip a beat. And then at the end of the day, you get so burnt out and you have to reevaluate yourself of, did I do that right? Cause I feel drained. <laughs> well, so, it definitely um, sounds like you're, you're going about it with all of the right reasons. Um, I know that, Music in, in general is the type of thing that a lot of people form a very personal connection with it. And it it's interesting potentially being an, a music educator and trying to help someone kind of like create that space that they can find that connection um, because music is not a really utilitarian skill to begin with. I mean, some mm-hmm. people might go into it because they want to become a studio performer or like be a part of an ensemble or an orchestra or a symphony or something like that. But mm-hmm. it's I I 
maybe you agree that it's not the type of thing that you, you don't continue playing music for years and years and years unless you really like it. Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, with what's going on right now, I have a lot of friends who are studio musicians and they're out of work. Yeah. Um, or they they can't perform right now. They have all these gigs lined up and um, they just have to stay at home. And I was reading this book called Startup Musician and it's written by a, like, he's a professional musician. He's also a professor at APU. And what he talks about in his book is about if you want it, you really got to want it. Cause if you don't really want it, then this is not the right industry for you. Cause every month you have to figure out how am I going to pay rent? How mm -hmm. am I going to pay for like my car payments and other expenses? And then if you desire a partner or significant other, are they okay with me being this individual who can't consistently make income? <laughs> So, I think that, that sums it up really well. Yeah, exactly. So if you want it, you got to want it with all your heart. And um, and I think that's another reason why I, I ended up going towards the music education route because although um, there's not as much um, music education in all the schools in our nation, um, it's still sort of a consistent job. And... In a way, um, I, I believe, you know, performing musicians and studio musicians, they contribute to making people feel good. Like, I know a person who does sound design for this um, studio that does music for, like, Nickelodeon and, like, Cartoon Network. Oh, very cool. And, yeah, it's, it's so awesome. But, like, at the same time, it's just like, oh, they're contributing to this TV shows, which kids or adults watch. And then that makes them happy. So, in a way, music is still contributing to um, overall happiness. And that's kind of the point, right? Is trying to find happiness with our, within ourselves, creating music, and hopefully reaching out to other people that it kind of strikes a chord with, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, um, oh, like this uh, paper I had to write last week. I, my whole introduction was about, you know, who who do you or which artists or what type of music do you go to, like, listen, whether or not it's like at the end of the day or just like to put some pet behind your step. Now, like, imagine a world where you don't have that. Oh, there's wow. no music. Yeah, there's no music behind movies or commercials or at the mall or in your car. So if we don't have that in our everyday lives, why have we um, done that disservice to our students in our yeah. schools? And, it's, and it's, um, it's, it's so cool. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, it's, you know, I, I spent some time working on a teaching credential um, to teach high school physics. And, um, you know, I, I definitely think that particularly along those lines, it often comes down to money and politics, but unfortunately, besides the music industry as a whole being, you know, it, it kind of um, grinds its gears on finding ways to make money. But, you know, it's oftentimes for individuals, 
they're not listening to artists because they're more successful than others or, you know, have made more money or something like that because that connection can't be found that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head with that because just like you said, like politics and not having enough money to fund schools and then they just um, sit on the skeleton structure of education. But there, there's evidence, like contributing to the, uh, how music actually contributes to education. And that's uh, due to like, um, so, um, oh, so uh, I wanted to ask you, like, um, what instruments do you play, Julian? All right, here we go. So I, <laughs> I began um, playing the drum set when I was um, 10 years old. And I started off by taking some um, formal uh, lessons um, at a local uh, music shop where I was growing up. And then when I went into sixth grade, went into middle school, I started playing in the school band. I played percussion for three and a half years going into the first year of high school. Um, Right around the same time when I was 10 or 11, I started plinking around on the acoustic guitar um, and then eventually got an electric guitar and learned how to play that. My cousin had a bass guitar and I'd pluck around on that from time to time. Um, And I came from a household that had, um, like my parents listened to a lot of classic rock and stuff like that. My Um, I have two older sisters. My oldest sister played in the high school marching band. She played clarinet. My, my other sister played, um, like classical piano and she went to recitals and took lessons and things like that. And she also, I think, played percussion in school. Um, but my parents didn't play instruments. And I remember my dad at one point saying that he took guitar lessons when he was really young and he hated it. And I thought that was really interesting mm-hmm. because everything about music was interesting to me. Um, so started with the drum set, then guitar. Um, in high school, I ended up taking a classical guitar class, and that was really cool. Um, in college, I took a year of like a drum set class, um, and then I also learned how to play the viola. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, and so I I spent a year playing the viola, and then my current boss actually gave me a violin, and I was like, well, a violin's kind of a, it's a smaller viola, so I kind of stuck with that for a little bit, Um, but we did have a piano when I was growing up, so I did kind of mess around with that, but I never really put a lot of effort into learning to read sheet music besides like rhythms um, because of percussion. So mm-hmm. I definitely can't sight read and I have a really hard time like deciphering sheet music. Um, so with the piano, I just always played by ear, uh, guitar, same thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's so cool. And um, like, you know, like we were just saying earlier how um, music in itself is like an umbrella. So if you can play one instrument, you can transfer that knowledge to another instrument. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, and as myself growing up as a classical like pianist, um, reading sheet music is not easy. <laughs> no, it, it's very much learning how to like read and speak another language. 
Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And that's always been the hardest part for me. Um, and my first piano teacher, she never did ear training with me. So oh, wow. when yeah. I finally did, yeah. And it was like, but isn't music supposed to, like, you're supposed to use your ears for music. So mm-hmm. why aren't we doing this? <laughs> so anyways, um, when I got into college, because I, I went to Cal Poly, got my undergraduate in music industry studies. Oh, awesome. And um, yeah, it was a really fun program. Had a lot of um, great opportunities through that and learned so much. Uh, they did stress, though, that like it's important that you train your ears because as a musician, um, that's your number one asset. And, you know, they always strive to um, push for ear health. But the main reason why, too, is... Um, it's so important for you to use your ears is that your auditory architecture um, within your inner hearing is, uh, it contributes actually to um, maintaining your memory. So individuals who, um, don't quote me on this, but I read (laughs) it in an article about how um, musicians who uh, continuously study music and just like instrument um, development, it actually helps them, like, I think it's, like, push off, like, Alzheimer's and dementia. I've heard very similar things. Yeah, and um, it, it does, um, I think the sad part of that is just if you are ready in that realm of dementia and Alzheimer's, it's really hard for you to pick up an instrument and try to learn to prevent or to combat that. Yeah. In essence, you want to prevent it. So, um, but it's it's really cool, like the whole music therapy realm of it. Like, they actually have like beat keeping classes, and beat keeping classes, like you clap with a metronome or you like pulsate to like a beat, and um, it's helped people with like different uh, disabilities, like neurological disabilities. I think, um, like I think it's like if you're on the autism spectrum, mm-hmm. it can actually help you. Um, what is it? Because a lot of individuals who are on the autism spectrum, um, they miss, like, social connections. And when they're able to do, like, a beat-keeping therapy, they're able to uh, be more empathetic with individuals around them. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it, that's why I love music, because it's, it's, it's like this invisible... Um, healing power that people I'm not sure what is it they don't acknowledge yeah I, I think kind of going back to earlier in our conversation I don't think that everyone realizes just how important music is um, and especially if it were mm-hmm. to be taken away I think we would realize real, really really quickly how much of a gap would be left over. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think that it would be very, very sad to, like, remove that. But, you know, when you finally, like, get onto the other side of things and you're like, oh, there's that piece of art that I didn't realize I held so much importance for and now it's gone, like, how do we get it back? And Yeah. It's, it's definitely crazy to think about. <laughs> so we've got a, a couple quick questions before uh, we wrap up. And so um, mm-hmm. the first one, do you have um, 
any artists that are exceptionally inspiring to you? Oh, yeah. Um, I'll just mention, like, two. Okay. <laughs> uh, the first one, the band is called Hippocampus. Okay. Um, and I love them. They're, like, an indie rock band. And just the way that they work together in their music with, like, writing and, like, playing their music. And, oh, they're so good live. But um, really, really good. Um and I think I really appreciate their like rhythmic elements that they put into their music. Um, and it's just like so catchy. So that's my number one band that I like constantly have on repeat. And the second artist I really love, um, her name is Daniela Andrade. Um, and she's a Canadian um, Hispanic uh, or Spanish um, uh, the musician. And um, her, she writes most of her music and it's just so, what's the word, passionate when she writes it. So when you start listening to it, it's, I don't know, you you go into a state of flow and I don't know, that's how you like connect with it. So yeah, those are my two top artists right now. Well, thanks so much for sharing. And our mm-hmm. last question, do you think that Morning Synth is doing music? Hmm. That's a really good question. I think that you all are doing music. And also being able to connect with other individuals. Okay. Which I believe is like so cool. Because you're, you're interviewing individuals and you're connecting it with the music. So it's... In essence, yeah, you all are doing music. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. Awesome. <laughs> well, Danny, we appreciate so much you being willing to um, be on our show. And this has been an amazing conversation, and I hope we can do another one real soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Julian and Eric, for making the time. Um, it, it was really, really fun to talk about music and, you know, learn about your, like, connections with music too it's always nice to meet other individuals who share the same passion yeah i absolutely agree well thank you so much and we hope that you have an amazing rest of your day thank you you too all right take care you too bye-bye now bye Well, last night, you made two burritos. Classic case of 
eyes being larger than your stomach. You get halfway through burrito number one. And you realize number two isn't going down. Can you save a burrito? Is it going to be as good or even good enough if I try and reheat it tomorrow? You're in luck. Morning Synth has experience reheating burritos. Step one, obtain leftover burrito. And step two, preheat oven to 225 degrees Fahrenheit. If you're living outside of the United States, a quick Google search will give you a conversion to Celsius. Step three, take some aluminum foil and wrap up your leftover burrito. Step four, place foil wrapped burrito into the oven. Put it straight onto the rack. Step five, let it sit for 30 minutes. Step six, take a food thermometer and measure the internal temperature of your burrito. 165 degrees Fahrenheit, perfect. Step seven, unwrap burrito and place it on a plate or a frisbee or something flat and relatively heat resistant. Step eight, let it sit. It's hot. 225 degrees Fahrenheit, hot. Step nine, put on a movie. Step 10, fall asleep during the movie. Step 11, wake up to a perfect temperature burrito reheated in the oven. Step 12, eat the burrito. Step 13, remember how good the fresh burrito was yesterday. Step 14, it's okay. This one is almost as good. Step 15, almost as good is just good enough.
Scrub-a-dub-dub. I'm in the shower. This is pleasant. You might be in the shower too. But I'm unsure. I know for sure that you are not in this shower. I am pleased to be alone. I am getting clean. Clean. It is important to make sure you are clean from time to time. Not that being dirty is bad, of course. If you do not know if you are clean, you can go to places and people will tell you that you are not clean. When I am clean, my favorite thing to do is get dirty. For this, I prefer to interface with mud. Mud is wet earth. You know the stuff. I already enjoy the earth. But wet earth is also pleasant. I can take my shoes and socks off of my feet and as much as I want in the mud. Don't worry. It won't make you feel bad. It's kind of exciting to when I want to. I do have to make sure that I get dirty from time to time. My housemates do not like it when I bring mud into the house. I try to respect how my housemates feel. Go ahead and make another phone call.
Hello, Leslie. This is Julian and Eric from Morning Synth. Hi, how are you guys? We're doing great. How about you? Pretty good. Awesome. <laughs> so yeah. this morning we've got some questions that we've lined up for you. You ready for that? Sure. Why not? Awesome. So, Leslie, we know you're the creative mind behind Dynamite Starfish, the company, but the Morning Synth community wants to know what is behind Dynamite Starfish, the thing. Oh. Uh, the, the Dynamite Starfish thing it originates from uh, rock climbing. And you can actually look it up on the Wikipedia glossary of climbing terms. It's where you have all of your limbs outstretched and you're um, violently trying to gain some kind of upwards momentum. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a great picture. (laughs) Violently, explosively, like dynamite. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. And I didn't actually know about that term until I read this glossary of climbing terms. Okay. Um, But at the time, like, I had a couple of drawings that people liked and were like, oh, you should put them on shirts. And then um, I felt like, you know, if I'm going to do that, then, you know, I should give my project a name. So what's the name going to be? I had all these names that were, I don't know, like, pretty cheesy. Not that not that good i don't think do you remember some Um, of the alternate options for names oh Oh, god i don't even know they were probably really generic maybe one of them was like you're bold or something like that okay but i don't know i also at the time i was working at this uh, advertising agency and so it's like bouncing ideas off with my copywriting partner and she just like she's a pretty funny lady she was like eh, I don't really know about these Leslie and then one day I just sent her a ping and I was like dynamite starfish and she and I both were immediately were just like I don't even care what it is but that's the <laughs> that's great so dynamite starfish you typically create um, art and apparel and other really cool things that um, relate to rock climbing. Um, and we'd like to know what does climbing mean to you? Oh. <laughs> it's funny because I ask so many people that question, <laughs> but I don't get asked that question very often. Well, this one's for you. Mm. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know. Climbing, to me, I guess it's changed over time. I think at first it used to be something that got me out of my work and apartment environment. I was, like, working a lot at a design studio, like, late hours, kind of ridiculous, really, um, in this basement where I don't think we had windows it was like very dim one of our designers uh, had to I think he was hospitalized for like vitamin D deficiency oh wow (laughs) I mean it wasn't a cruel place to work I don't think it was it was fine in the sense that that's normal for design studios Um, anyways uh, it got me out of there it got me 
exercising again. Like I had always done tons and tons of activity as a kid, but once I started working, I kind of just stopped. And so it was it was a great way to exercise, um, sort of break out of my usual routine. Um, also a good way to like make friends and socialize. So um, I think that's really the purpose that it served in the beginning. And then, you know, once I started climbing outside more, it became more about uh, like how I related with the outdoor atmosphere. Um, and then, you know, from then it's been a journey of like, who do I enjoy climbing with? Like, who do I feel safe climbing with? <laughs> um, you know, because you realize that it's, it's nice to just go out with anybody and everybody you meet from the gym. But at the same time, like those people kind of hold your life in their hands when they belay you. So you start to make some bigger decisions about who you go climb with and spend time with and how you spend time outside and what you're doing to the environment. And I think now, I think it's just a way for me to access the outdoors and like have that nice outdoor time that I think we all need as human beings. The climbing is just one pathway to that. Yeah. It gives us a great opportunity to refill up on some of that vitamin D we're missing out on too. Oh yeah, I get so much now. <laughs> Climbing or otherwise. <laughs> yeah. So um this can sometimes be what I consider um sort of an awkward question, but at the same time, um I I think it's a good thing to ask and when we're trying to break down the concept of what normal or typical means but do you feel like a typical climber no no <laughs> um i think well i'm not sure what a typical climber is i think depending on what crowd you roll with it can be so different um but yeah, I don't I don't know if I necessarily like fit into any of those typical climber roles. I'm not like super strong where I'm like a athlete status or, you know, people look up to me for my climbing ability. Like definitely nobody's doing that. Um, and I don't feel like I'm like your typical climber in the sense where maybe this is just more of like a common trait amongst people at the climbing gym. It's, you know, a lot of people work nine to five, come to the gym in the evening on Tuesdays and Thursdays and then go out on the weekend. Don't think I'm really there either. Um, I'm not like an aspiring guide or anything like that, although I think those skills are important and I'd love to learn them. So I, that could be one branch of typical, I guess. I'm not sure. Are people still interested in doing that? <laughs> um, yeah, well, I don't know. I don't think I don't think I fit into those. Well, I think it's even more important that people don't necessarily fit in to what some people would consider being a typical climber because it's definitely the type of thing that shouldn't be put into a box because climbing is the type of thing that anyone should have access to. Which means that if anyone right. has access to, then 
that kind of deletes this kind of sense of typicality or norm- normalcy. Well, I think it's a dangerous standard to hold, like trying to be a certain type of climate, like because there's so much uh, risk involved. Like if you're trying to do something that you're not, which is already kind of unadvisable in life, uh, and you're doing that in a high-risk situation, then I think that becomes even more dangerous for everybody. And so face uh, face the risk and the consequences before trying to chase an Im- image, potentially. Totally. And I think there are like so many different types of climbers out there that it really is like a form of self-expression I've come to learn. And, you know, there are... I'm sure people who want to be a certain type of climber, like I want to dress like this person and look like this person. And, you know, I like this pro climber's attitude. So I'm, I'm going to embody that. Like, I think that there are definitely people who operate that way, but I, that seems to be a dangerous way to operate, at least to me. Yeah, I think I can mostly agree with that. Um, so also you've tabled with Eric before. Can you tell us a little bit about how that went? <laughs> Best night of my life. <laughs> um, yeah, it was great. Where were we? Then Bishop at the Kragen Classic. Um, Eric was a, it was a cool surprise to have him come down from Yosemite and table with me and be such a helpful human being about it. Um, I wasn't expecting to have any help that weekend, but he just happened to be in town and happened to be willing to help. And um, when you're one person who's fairly small, just moving a lot of boxes and taking tents up and down and stuff, like, oh man, every time I can get an extra hand, (laughs) it's so hugely appreciated. And um, Eric had a fun story about uh, taking someone up El Cap for the first time. And so I think people had fun listening to his stories. And um, yeah, I think that's like what it's all about. It's like sharing stories and talking about like your experience and where you've been and where that person's been that day. And I think Eric like definitely had a lot to bring to the conversation that weekend. As he usually does. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um. Are you afraid of anything? Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, specifically? Um, I think I'm, yeah, go ahead. I think I'm afraid of, like, losing, losing some vital capacity in some way. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like maybe like succumbing to disease or like um, not being able to do things. I think that kind of embodies the fears of a lot of pe- people <laughs> during this time as well. Sure, sure. But I think like doing Dynamite Starfish, like starting a business, operating it and learning from it, at least during this time, has been helpful to you surviving this time because you're so used to so much irregularity anyways and so for example like when the quarantine hit all the climbing gyms closed down so you know we make 
uh, quite a bit of our revenue from tabling at climbing gyms, going to festivals, all that stuff. And it's great and it's fun, but everything for the year pretty much got canceled. So then it became like, okay, how can we use what we have to uh, shift to being fully online? Um, which um, I guess, you know, I'm lucky in the sense that I have all this experience with graphic design and a little bit of web design and there's just a lot that I can do myself. So I was able to shift completely and just go totally online. And it's actually been great. It's been a great experience. Um, But yeah, I I would highly recommend that if you want to thrive in a crisis situation to normally inject some irregularity into your life and you probably do much better. I think that's an interesting point about rock climbers in general. Um, Oftentimes people talk about the potential benefits of rock climbing and I guess engaging in sports that have a higher inherent risk um, when people learn how to properly approach that risk then they have opportunities to make or at least face making difficult decisions in time of pressure and fear and excitement and like physical exhaustion and things like that and I definitely think that it's directly relatable to everyday life totally yeah and you know if I really think about it I wonder if without climbing would I have started a business at all like I think it may have actually taught me how to have a business um it just through those like risk management um lessons and um learning to deal with all those like insecurities and fears and just having to move through them um I'm sure there are other ways to learn but I feel like in rock climbing it's just it's very very direct like it goes from your body to your brain in like a second and you're like oh man that's that's how it is (laughs) yeah so can you tell us a little bit or maybe um one thing that you found really difficult when starting Dynamite Starfish and then one thing that you found to be surprisingly easy? Mm. I think the difficulty came with finding acceptance, maybe. Okay. Like, uh, you know, like like we talked about, like, I don't really feel like I was a, a typical climber. Um, you know, I didn't have any kind of like good standing in the community where I was like a, you know, I'm not like insta famous or uh, I don't have like a following or anything. I was just a person who made some drawings that was like um, that people liked and they were about climbing and people were like, oh, put them on shirts. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to put them on shirts, I got to sell them. So I have to show them to people. <laughs> so, yeah, like just in the process of showing them to people, I realized, you know, like a lot of, you know, especially like if you're trying to approach a shop or a gym, they don't know anything about you. They're, they want to know, like, who, who believes in you? Like, who are you? Like, uh, you have to prove yourself in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I think that was probably the most difficult thing. Um, And at that time, you know, I think now there's like a big community of 
or at least in LA, of like artists who, you know, kind of like me at that time, just have a few drawings, like want to make some stickers, like maybe a shirt, whatever. And now they get invited out to table at events because we know that they exist. But uh, when I was starting out, I there I think I was the only one. Like I don't want to say that like I invented doing pop up shop sessions because <laughs> I obviously didn't. But <laughs> like clearly that was there before. But you know I would find like all the gyms that I normally go to like call them and talk to the owner and be like really shy about it just like ah, I mean this drawing like it's on a shirt can I come to your gym people want to look at it. <laughs> and so the, yeah that was the hardest thing um and then on the flip side the something easy was probably like the the actual production of it I mean there were a lot of mishaps and mistakes um, in the beginning but I had learned screen printing in college and so I, I knew how to do it myself um, I didn't really have a lot of confidence in printing shirts myself but you know I, I knew how the process worked I knew how to design specifically for screen printing so I knew how to like apply half tones and how to separate my colors and all that stuff um, so that saved me a lot of money because I didn't have to hire somebody to do all that stuff for me. And I wasn't making designs where it was just uh, impossible to screen print because I think just trying to learn that process um, would have been pretty hard to deal with all at the same time. Like it, the, the whole mountain of tasks to do probably would have felt impossible if I didn't already know how to screen print. Yeah, that's incredibly convenient that you already had those skills under your belt. Yeah, and I was already screen printing like posters and fine art prints before the shirts. And um, like I had once I started screen printing in college, uh, I knew that I loved this medium. And all the art I made after that was all specifically designed for screen printing. That's really cool. So it was just like, the, the method spoke to me and the style of art I had was um, perfect for screen printing and it just as the years went on I adapted it more for screen printing and so when it came around to doing this it's just like oh, I've been I've been waiting for this <laughs> that's really cool so to round out our conversation we'd also like to ask you what's your most stoke inducing climbing story Inducing climbing story. Ah. I'm probably going to be climbing in the Dolomites in Italy. Okay. That was great. And, you know, it wasn't any particular, like, hard kind of climb or anything, but I think it's just the whole story was, it was a cool... It was a cool way to live for a period of time. And by a period of time, it was like two weeks. But I, I essentially got invited to go to Italy for a wedding. Um, and so the person I was dating at the time and I, I mean, he was my climbing partner. We bought tickets together. We um, had kind of loosely planned out like a, a itinerary. Um, but I think it was like a month before the trip, we broke up. Oh, wow. And so it, it was my friend's wedding. So I was like, well, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to go. <laughs> and 
he was like, well, I bought the ticket and it's not returnable, so I'm going to go too. It's like, cool, but I'm not going <laughs> to hang out with you. But we were actually like in the same town in Arco, which like, I, don't, I think some climbers have probably been to Arco, but it's a tiny, tiny town. So we'd run into each other at all the festivals and stuff. And it was kind of funny because oh, we were wow. like the two Americans at this Italian festival, but we were like trying to avoid each other. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so we both go on this independent trip to Italy. Um, and so, you know, I figured like, okay, I'm going to Italy by myself. Like, what do I do? Like, I'm not, I'm not like a proficient multi-pitch climber, but I do want to climb multi-pitch, especially in the Dolomites because it's beautiful and it's epic. So uh, it, it's hilarious, but right before I went, you can also cut me off if it's going too long. No problem. Right before I went, I took a wilderness first aid class where I met our mutual friend. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so I learned how to do a bunch of multi-pitch stuff from our friend Justin, mm-hmm. um, and I took it with me to to Italy, and it made me feel better about, you know, just being a person finding random partners. Um, I linked up with this 71-year-old man from British Columbia who, climbing in the Dolomites, was on his bucket list, and we found each other through non-project and he was like look if you know you're going to be there i'll buy a ticket right now and i'll meet wow (laughs) like cool like you don't know me you're 71 we're gonna share a hotel room uh and we're gonna live together for like five days (laughs) (laughs) and it was it was a good time like he had been climbing for something like 50 to 60 years super experienced but at the same time, like, you don't want to just trust that everyone has got it all the time. So, like, it was nice to know that I had something to bring to the table. And the, the climbs we did were, they were just epic, beautiful. Like, you could see the entire Alps. Um, and I think the reason why it was so stoke-inducing and memorable for me was because, like, it was when I decided to kind of take into my own hands like learning about climbing and before that you know I was kind of just climbing at the gym sport climbing bouldering like I didn't I had maybe done like some trad leads but nothing that I thought was like really challenging uh, not too many multi-fish leads um, but I realized how powerful it was to like learn about your gear and um like the type of freedom that that gives you because then you can go climb anything and you're like oh well like i know i know that like to the best of my ability i've made this safe and like when i was just sport climbing and bouldering i was like always had these like hang-ups about going multi-pitch climbing it's like oh that just seems really scary like i don't know what that is i don't (laughs) there's too many things Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very important transition for a lot of climbers as they're becoming more experienced is that that time where you're really starting to trust the decisions that you're making and the gear that you're using. And um, yeah, knowing that you're doing things in the way that um, makes you feel good about continuing doing it and stepping outside of your comfort zone. For sure, yeah. Yeah. Well, Leslie, we appreciate you so much for being on Morning Synth today and hearing about Dynamite Starfish and uh, what climbing is to you. And yeah, we 
appreciate it a whole ton and we hope to have another conversation real soon for sure hopefully in person yeah (laughs) that is definitely the goal (laughs) yeah well thanks for having me yeah this is a great little morning activity i loved it oh i'm glad that you're enjoying it yeah all right well thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day cool you too thanks all right take it easy Okay, bye. Bye. If you'd like to support Leslie and Dynamite Starfish, you can check it out at dynamitestarfish.com or on Instagram at dynamitestarfish. As always, if you can find a way to send us a message, we can get you that info as well. Now for your daily etymology, brought to you by edemonline.com. Today's word is flux. From the late 14th century, abnormally copious flow. From old French, flux. A flowing, a rolling, a bleeding. Or directly from Latin, fluxus, flowing, loose, slack. Which is the past participle of fluere, to flow. Which is also where the word fluent comes from. Originally, flux meant excessive flow of blood or excrement. It was also an early name for dysentery. Its meaning sense of continuous succession of changes is attributed to the 1600s.
Interviews for your coffee. episode of Morning Synth.